As we prepare to preach, and anyone on the preaching team knows, it's always more about what should I not say than what should I say. Most of you, if you've been having the Essential Jesus book available and you've been reading through that, you will know that next week we finish out that book. Pastor Jason will, will end the Essential Jesus series next week. Knowing what I was preaching on, and, and sometimes if, if the preaching team hasn't experienced this, at times they will sometime in the future, you get to a place and it's like you're stuck. Now, it's not you're stuck because you don't know what to say, but it's like you've come to this place, this, if you will, this, this nugget, and God just seems to say, you got to dig it out. You've got to dig it out. You have to, this is where I want you to emphasize what I want to say to my people today. Now, you're going to have to listen to this message really objectively. You can't take it. You can take it personally. We want you to take it personally. But what I'm saying is really something that applies to the body of Christ. It's a kingdom message. So if you're sitting here today and I'm about three-fourths of the way through and you're saying, Pastor Don, you're making me feel guilty. You're making me feel guilty. I feel so guilty. No, that is the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Because we can't make you feel guilty. We cannot bring condemnation upon you. That's impossible. So I want you to listen with open ears and open hearts this morning. And at the same time, when I came to this place, we're at the end of Essential Jesus. I, the, the question came to my mind, and if you have the book, you, you know how it's laid out. When you've been reading through the Essential Jesus, have you, have you read all of the scriptures involved, or have you just read what I call the clep notes? That's the little paragraph that paraphrases the whole scripture that's involved. And I'm not, not asking for a raise of hands, but what I'm saying is this. As I begin to read through here, and I begin to study what I was talking, wanted to talk about today, and to reemphasize again the importance of the Word of God, the importance of the Bible, the necessity of the Bible, as as Pastor Nicole prayed a few moments, moments ago, God, let your word sink into us. And I still believe in the importance of the word of God. There have been times in my life on, on, on certain occasions where I've been reading something and it's, it's struck me, it's hit me, it's really come home. And I'll just, if I'm in my office, I'll just kick back in my chair and I'll open up to that particular portion of scripture and I just lay it on my chest. I understand you don't get God's word by osmosis, but really what I'm saying is this, God, here's what you're speaking to me. Somehow get it into my heart, and I'll just lay back with my eyes closed and just concentrate and dwell on it and, until I really feel like that I understand what we're talking about. You see, the Bible is important, and, and if if you look back in the history, you understand that we really have made it an important book. In fact, 100 million copies of this get sold every year, 20 million in the United States. 
20 million copies of this book that we put together with the other four Bibles the average family has in their home. Displayed on the coffee table in front of the Davenport. That's for all of you seniors. Davenport coffee table. We make it important, and and if we're not careful, we kind of lose the significance of this book. And I'm not here this morning to promote what is the best. And I understand that there are many, many translations. I understand there are many versions. And and some of you have one that you really like. And some of you would say, well, you know, Pastor Don, if it ain't King James, it ain't inspired. But do you understand that King James was not the first translation? You have to go back to the 1300s. King James wasn't even the first translation. But the Bible becomes important. It becomes significant. But here's where my concern lies. When we look at what is happening in the economic world, there are two things that I want to address this morning. I'm going to read them to you so that you will understand and get the impact of it. The first one is called Product proliferation. Thomas Nelson, the publisher, publishes 60 different editions of the Bible every year. And you thought there was just King James, the NIV, and the message. They publish 60 different editions of the Bible each year. The Bible now comes in all colors, including those of your college. There are Bibles for seekers to cowboys from brides to barmen. There's a waterproof outdoor Bible and a camouflage Bible for use in war zones. The quote, 100-minute Bible summarizes the good book for those of us who are time-challenged. Product proliferation. The second thing that comes to my mind is this, and we'll call it user-friendly. Their prayer books for street slang would go something like this, and even though I walk through the hood of death, I won't back down, for you have my back. There's a toddler-friendly version that promises for the boys gross and gory. And the picture Bible looks like a superhero comic. And God's little princess devotional Bible is pink and sparkly. The Bible has even been translated into Klingon for those who are obsessed with Star Trek. Yes, it is in the process. They call it the KLV. We now have the fully, and catch this, because now we go off, we spin off on a tangent here. We now have the fully posable Jesus doll that, oh yes, only my wife can call me a liar. You can't. We now have the fully posable Jesus doll that recites famous passages of the good book. There is even a Bible jukebox, oh yes that plays your favorite biblical passages. And yet, and yet, 
The author of these articles of information have come to the conclusion that there is a significant, significant difference between getting the Bible and understanding the Bible. The bottom line, according to George Gallup, who is one of the most well-known pollsters in our country, the bottom line is that in America, we are still biblically illiterate. But Pastor Don, how can that be? With everything that you have just shared with us, how can that be? How, with all of the versions, the translations, and everything that we have, how can that be? Well, if we, if we, if we come on down the, the, the chain just a little bit, and I didn't realize this was available, so I had my secretary pick it up for me. I didn't have time to get it. And then I got to thinking later, I wonder what they thought about her when she bought it. But you can go to Barnes & Noble and get the Bible for dummies. The Bible for dummies. Now, quite honestly, I have looked through this. This is not bad. It has broken down the information and put it in a, in a palatable way, but it's actually called the Bible for dummies. Why have I opened up with this kind of a thought process? And the reason is, I really believe that the Word of God is still real. I believe that it's still powerful. I believe that that book we call the Bible, and now I'm talking irregardless of, 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 of what version that you use, that book that we call the Bible still is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. I believe that that book we call the Bible still brings us comfort in the midst of grief, brings us joy in the midst of sorrow. That book that we call the Bible still gives us that hope that come unto me all ye that labor and heavy laden, for I will give you rest. I believe that that book we call the Bible and those other four books that we have in our house called the Bible is still the roadmap to a productive life. I have in my possession, and I'm not a collector of Bibles, but I have in my possession the first Bible that was given to me when I went to college. I have the first Bible, Thompson Chain Reference Bible that I used in my first year as senior pastor. I have the Bible that was owned by my cousin, and I often wondered why I kept it, but this weekend it came back to me because he chose a lifestyle and ended up dying from AIDS. But I have his Bible because it tells me he was getting it, but he wasn't understanding. I have a Bible from a 95-year-old lady that we pastored in Jamestown, New York, who for years had been praying for the salvation of her son. And one day God spoke to her and he said, are you willing to give up the one thing that you love the most to see your son come to Jesus? 
And she thought about it for a moment, and she said, yes, I am. And you know what it was? Ice cream. <laughs> we got a lot of people disagreeing with me this morning. Yes, it was. Ice cream. And here's the thing. For 51 years, she never touched ice cream. Because every day in her devotional and every time that she opened up this book, her heavenly Father continued to reinforce, for I so loved the world that I gave my only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in me will not perish, but have everlasting life. And for 51 years. And I remember the Sunday that she came into church. She said, Pastor, I have to tell you, I got a phone call from my son last night. And he said, Mom, I thought you just might want to know I've given my heart to Jesus. Now, he didn't know she was, had been fasting for 51 years. But there was something in this book. There's something in this book that gave her the hope and the confidence and the faith that God would come through. So this morning, I want to put a scripture up on the screen, and I want you to read it with me. It's not lengthy, at least this scripture is not lengthy. But I want us to take a look at it together. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 through 17. Would you read it out loud with me this morning? All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And this is obviously gender neutral, and so every man and every woman of God may be equipped for the good work that God has called you to. All Scripture, all Scripture, all Scripture, all Scripture. And here's what I'm sensing, and this is what was impressed upon me this weekend, is that as we read through the Word of God, we have this tendency of picking and choosing what we read. So let me ask you this. When your children were growing up, did you let them pick what foods they wanted to eat at the supper table? Honey, that's okay. You can have your mashed potatoes and gravy and your, your roast, but now you don't need the carrots. You can let them go. When your children were growing up, did you take this position of allowing them to go to bed whenever they felt like it. Midnight, one o'clock, two o'clock. When your children were growing up, did you take the stance of saying, honey, it's time for your bath, and the child saying, but I'm tired, I'll do it next week. When you applied for your job, wherever you are employed or you have been employed, when you filled out your application, did you have the opportunity to tell your employer 
what part of that job you wanted to do. I would assume that the answer to those questions would be no. No, I didn't allow my children to pick and choose. No, I didn't allow them to go to bed when they wanted to. No, I didn't allow them to skip their bath for five days. No, when I went and hired in at GE or wherever I'm working, no, I didn't have the privilege to say to the boss, in this job description you've given me, here are the eight things that I want to do. And the other things, nah, not so much. Now let's fast forward to this morning. The Word of God, more powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword, right divi rightly dividing spirit and truth. I ask you the question, are you picking and choosing what you want to read out of this book? Because here's the thing, friends, we can, we can, we can go to that psalm that says, he will give you the desires of your heart and leave out if you delight yourself on the Lord. We can go to that one verse says that it, God would prosper and be in good health and leave everything else out around that. We could go to that verse that says, I am the Lord that heals thee, and leave everything else around that unread. So if we decide this morning to pick and choose what we want to read out of this book, we can. But if we are a follower of Jesus, and if we are walking in obedience to God, we can't. We can't. You say, but, but, but why are you sharing these things with me? Because we all know I don't believe that. According to the pollsters, and not just non-religious people, but according to the pollsters, a third of our country could not name you the first book of the Bible. When asked who preached the Sermon on the Mount, and that's what we're talking about this morning in a few moments, who asked who preached the Sermon on the Mount, their favorite answer was Billy Graham. And they could not explain the relevance of Easter. Why do we celebrate Easter? It was the bunnies and the chocolate and the candy but less than a third of people in this country could not relate to the death, the burial, and the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You say, Pastor Don, why are you so passionate about this? Because I know where we are living. I know what is upon us. I know how difficult it is to get through a daily life. And if I didn't have this book, if I didn't have this to go by, I'd never make it. I would never make it. 
So you see, when we come to scriptures today, and we're going to read some scriptures, it's going to seem like that we're reading more scripture, but that's on purpose. But we come to the scriptures today, I'm going to take you to the sermons of Jesus. Now, if you've been reading those, I think it's page 91 to 95, if you've been reading that in Essential Jesus, you'll know that this guy that you thought was just a real teddy bear gets a little upset. And even when he begins to talking about hypocrisy and the commercialization of the, of the temple, and there's some things that Jesus deals with and addresses that really ticks him off. But we come to the Sermon on the Mount, the longest sermon ever preached. And Jesus is withdrawing himself a little ways, and he sits down, and the Scripture says, and he begins to teach them. When you read through that Sermon on the Mount, and I'm not obviously going through that sermon, I'm just giving you a couple of points. When you read through the Sermon on the Mount, you must understand that it's more than just a few blessed moral statements. The Sermon on the Mount involves a message that outlines the kind of life that's expected of kingdom believers. And, and, and when, when you read through that, you can't miss it. Blessed are they. Blessed are they. Blessed are they. You, it's there. But my concern this morning is this. We're getting it. Every Sunday, we're getting it. Maybe not what your standards of expectation are, but Pastor Jack, Pastor John, Pastor Jason, Pastor Nicole, myself, we have a topic, we pray, we research, we read, we pray again, we read again, and we stand here as fallible human beings teaching you about an infallible God. So we're getting it, but we're not understanding it. We say, How can you make that statement? I can make that statement because if we were understanding it, we would begin to see certain things happen in kingdom ministry. If we were getting it and understanding it, we would begin to see those relationships begin to heal. We would begin to see the anxiety and the worry and the frustration and the fear begin to roll off of this body because we understand it. We understand it. No weapon formed against me shall prosper. Nothing, nothing, nothing can separate me from the love of God. 
When we begin to think that way and pray that way, that is a sign that we're understanding it. But we are continuing to see the results of what's happening in our country, in our community, in our church, and around the world. There are a lot of people who profess to be followers of Jesus who just do not understand. So when Jesus began to preach the Sermon on the Mount, he wanted us to know that these were not just blessed little moral statements, but this was a lifestyle. This Sermon on the Mount thing relates to our personal life, our life with others, and our relationship with God. Now, indulge me just for a few moments because he, he shifts gears and he, he, in this whole Sermon on the Mount thing and the sermons of Jesus, and he goes in Beatitudes, and now he moves into spiritual disciplines. And the three spiritual disciplines that you see in, in your handout, I, there are scriptures that are attached to that, and, and I want us to look at those. The first is giving. He talks about giving. Like, here we go. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men, to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And I don't know what, you're, what you are accustomed to in, in your church, past church history, but I have to say that I've lived through the great and the exciting, and I've lived through the embarrassing and the indicting part of church. And a congregation such as this, I've heard them say, we're going to be receiving monies to do X amount of things. And here's what I want. I need, I need 10 people to give $5,000. And if you're willing to do that, and we always put the spirituality plug in there, if you're willing to do that, if God is moving on your heart, I want you to stand right and somebody would stand, and another one would stand. And then it got into this carnal thing. Well, he's got a business. If he's going to give 5000 no, I'm going to give 5000 So they pop up. And pretty soon, when it's all said and done, you have all of the people standing who in their commitment to God and kingdom giving have just received their reward. It's all done. So he goes from giving to prayer. And there's some scriptures that I want to bring to your attention, actually one scripture, but I want you to look at that with me because it's pretty, pretty important here as we tie these all together. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites 
For they loved to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street to be seen by men. I tell you the truth. They've already received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Sometimes an extemporaneous babbling is confused or interpreted as prayer. When we pray, we need to have an understanding of what God says about prayer. When we pray, we need to have an understanding that it's not how loud we pray. And again, some of you have been spared this in your church history, but, but I haven't. And some of you can relate that when somebody would get up to pray, the louder they prayed <clears throat> was the more anointed they appeared. And they would I'm not going to do this because I'll stretch my vocal cords. and can't finish my message. But they, they sweat. And they pray. And they get louder. They kind of forgot that God wasn't deaf. They didn't have to scream. Because what Jesus is saying is that when you pray, don't stand that people can see you, that people can hear you, that people recognize you and single you out. But go to God in that quiet time, in that solitude, and let that, breathe, let that be your prayer life. Number three, fasting. And by the way, I think that in a few days we're going to be entering into a, a time of fasting, so this, this is kind of appropriate. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for, the, for they disfigure their faces to show men they are fasting. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to men that you're fasting, but only to your father. Are missing in there only to your father who is unseen and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you I'm not a big faster I, I, I don't I don't look forward to that I I'm being honest with you I have a difficulty with that it's a it's just a it's, it's a discipline thing it's a transparency thing but one thing I'm good at is even though I'm not fasting, I'm really good at being cynical at those who do. <laughs> Especially those people who walk around droopy-eyed, sunken in cheeks. How are you today? I'm doing good. I'm in my second day <laughs> of fasting. But bless God, if I hold on, I know 
I'm going to have a breakthrough. See, when I see people like that, it's not hard to be cynical. I want to take them by the shoulders, give them a good shaking, and say, get down to McDonald's and get you a sandwich. Because it's not going to hurt what you're doing and what you're going through. But Jesus, when he got into this, the giving, and he got into prayer, and he got into fasting, these were spiritual disciplines. And so this was still all a part of this Sermon on the Mount thing. I told you it was long. But here's the caution of giving in prayer and fasting. Even right things can be done with wrong motives. And that's where discernment and wisdom comes in. You say, oh, it had to be a God thing because it was, it was right. Even right things can be done with wrong motives. And I'm just using this as an example. It, it doesn't matter if you take a check and you, you leave it blank and say to our treasurer or Pastor John, you fill it out. If your motives are not right and your heart's not right and your purpose isn't right, it's, it's not doing a bit of good. You've just given us $300,000 and you ain't got nothing. <laughs> you say, oh, I'm waiting till I get to heaven. You're going to be surprised when you get to heaven. And God takes care of all the accounts and, he, and you go, God, wait, 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 God. There should be an entry for $300,000 at Erie First Assembly somewhere. Are you missing it? And God's going, no, I'm not missing it. See, you gave it for the wrong reason. So you don't get credit. What a bummer. The transition. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus broke all rules for effective communication. And I won't stay on this long. But I, I got to point out a couple of things. He broke all the rules for effective communication. First of all, his sermon was too long. It went over that 15, 20 minute mark that we're so used to. And I'm just telling you because I can. And my age and my position and, and, and my background of senior pastoring, I can tell you this. It's one of the biggest challenges we have as pastors. And how do I hold their attention for 25 minutes? Because, you see, I looked, I looked all of this up. The average attention span is about 15 minutes maximum. And anything over 15 minutes, people start to turn out and tune off. And they start to doze, and they start to daydream, and they start to plan where they're going for dinner, and they start all about 15 minutes. And they're saying that that even is being shortened down to about seven minutes. And so some of you may wonder, and, and I, I guess I'm, I'm the only one. It's not that I'm stubborn, but I, it, it's out of my comfort zone. You say, but, but when you guys are preaching, you've got jokes and one-liners and funny stories and you've got cartoon clips and you've got all this stuff going on and man it just really it really keeps our interest 
And, and we, sometimes we do that because we know if we don't change our presentation every seven minutes, we're going to lose you. And here's Jesus sitting down on a hill. No microphone. Outdoors. Preaching way longer than we're used to. And no video clips and funny stories and jokes to intro and exit and fill in between the message. You see, there's, there's a thing that took place in the year 2000, three, four, five, somewhere in there, and I'm, don't hold me to these years, but this was the beginning of Facebook and text and Twitter and Snap, Snapchat, is it Snapchat, Instagram, all of these things begin to take place. I can tell you this. Researchers have authenticated and verified that in 2000, our attention span, that means we're being able to concentrate without a distraction, our attention span was 12 seconds in the year 2000. In 2013, it now has went down to eight seconds. Say, so, well, Pastor Don, how, how do I, well, I'll tell you how that works. You're sitting there listening to me this morning, and you really want to concentrate, at least be courteous, you really want to concentrate, but out of the corner of your eye, you see this lady digging through her pocketbook. <clears throat> so now, what's she trying to find? What's she doing? And you're kind of letting this thing all go on. And then, uh, Pastor Don's still up there. So that, then I get, your, I get your concentration for a while. Then over here, out of the corner of your eye, you see this guy lean over and, and, and say something to his wife. And now it's like, I wonder what they're talking about. Talking about going to lunch, talking about, wonder what they're talking about. And then after a few seconds, uh, Pastor Don's still up there. Better try to focus and concentrate. Now, the reason you're laughing is most of you have already done this while I've been preaching this morning. <laughs> and I see some honest people that are shaking your head. <clears throat> Here's the thing. Our attention span today is eight seconds. As God is my witness and authenticated what I'm about to tell you, the attention span of a goldfish is nine seconds. Our attention span is less than that of a goldfish. But that's why, for some of you who maybe have come out of a different style of ministry, a different style, a church style or stylistically, it, it seems different. And you say, well, why do we have all these things on there? It's not so much that we want to, but we have to, to keep your attention. You say, well, and, and, and listen to me closely. If you're getting ready to doze off, don't do it now. Wait for just a second. <laughs> but listen closely. So how did Jesus do it? On a grassy hill... No PA system. 
None of the social media that we have available today. How did he do it? Jesus was able to pull it off because he spoke with authority and the power of the Holy Spirit. When we are up here preaching the Word of God and we do not sense that we are under the power of God and we do not sense that the Holy Spirit is ministering through us, we better have a joke or a story or something because we're going to lose your attention span. But I believe that when Jesus Christ taught, you could hear a pin drop because he spoke and he taught in the authority. And people know the difference. People understand the difference. They understand the difference of getting up there and saying words. They understand the difference of getting up there and repeating a procedure, a ritual, a routine, and understanding that it's something that God has birthed inside. And if you can't get it out, you're going to bust because you know it's what God's wanting to say. So, I leave you with this. You may not make it home alive. This hasn't been a real feel-good message this morning. I understand that. But here's what's going to happen. Just like when you discipline your children, and whether it's a timeout or spanking or however you discipline your children, I hope that before it's over, you say, honey, come here. Sit here beside me. If they're small enough, sit on my lap. And you put your arms around them. You tell them, you know, what mommy or daddy did wasn't fun for us. But you had to be disciplined. You had to be rebuked. You had to be corrected. You had to be trained. But I want you to know that mommy and daddy love you so very much. And if you receive something out of this message this morning that's felt a little tart, a little sharp, a little hard to digest, when we pray in a few moments, we're going to pray that God will just come as our daddy and put his arms around us and say, I had some things that I wanted Pastor Don to tell you, but I'm not going to let you go till you know I love you so much. And I close with this last point, and actually it's the topic of my message, ready or not, here I come. And I want to refer your attention to the screen. And, and I want us to take a look at this just for a moment in Matthew chapter 24. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, claiming I am the Christ, and you and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, 
kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All of these things are the beginning of birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but he, he who stands, he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. This always raises quite a controversy. It's open for speculation, interpretation. I did notice, I, I can't remember the exact number, but there are still over one point some billion people who have never had the gospel translated into their language. And we can spend time arguing back and forth, when's it coming, when's it coming, what does it mean? And basically what he was saying was this, I can wrap it up in three sentences. Jesus predicted the temple would eventually be destroyed. And that was hard for them to understand because the temple was ornate. It was beautiful, this white stoned building with gold overlays over the top. And, and, and people would come from far around to see the temple. And Jesus is saying, it's going to be destroyed. But it, was, it wasn't figuratively that he was talking about. It, it wasn't literally, it was figuratively speaking. And then... Jesus predicted his disciples, you're going to be in for some tough times. And then Jesus predicting the end of the world. Ready or not, here I come. Now, to show you how far advanced we have come, in my younger years, pastors and evangelists would preach this. And they would give you this verse that I'm using in conclusion, Matthew 24, 27, Jesus says, For as lightning that comes from the east is visible, even the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And it would go something like this. And I'm not going to holler and scream and get my handkerchief out either, but this is what it would be like. For those of you who are here this morning, and you don't know if your heart is not right with Jesus, and you've never confessed your sin, and you've never had, had taken that opportunity to accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, I'm saying this to you, that while I am preaching, if you doze off while I am preaching, and Jesus comes back, you will either wake up in heaven or in hell. That kept a lot of people awake. And that kept a lot of people focused on what the evangelist was saying. But seriously, think about it as the lightning, as the lightning, as the lightning. And even in a Sunday congregation, and I know the tiresomeness and the wearisome that we have, but even to doze off, and Jesus comes back, we're going to be out of here.
soon and very soon, we are going to see the king. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. We are going to see the king. And Jesus says, ready or not, here I come. Would you stand with me this morning? Hallelujah. Father, we stand in your presence today. You have reminded us that there is a difference between getting your word and understanding your word. You have reminded us that when it comes to the word of God that we can pick and choose, but if we are a follower of Jesus and we walk in obedience to you, we really can't. And then, Lord, we thank you for reminding us that the Sermon on the Mount is not just a bunch of little blessed moral statements, but they're things that will change our life and affect our personal life and life with others and our relationship with God. And then, Lord, you went on to share in giving and prayer and fasting, and this whole message is going on and on and on and on. And then you come and talk about the end of the world is coming, and the message is still going on and on and on. And yet, somehow, Jesus, in your authority and in your power, your word was spoken with clarity and confidence. And Father, I pray this morning, as Pastor Nicole mentioned earlier, my prayer is, God, let your word penetrate our heart. Let your word penetrate our heart. Let your word penetrate our heart that we know that your word is powerful and mighty and loving. So, Father, we take this time this morning to give you thanks and to give you praise. To God be the glory. Great things you have done. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Praise the Lord. Have a great day in the Lord. Have have a great day in the Lord. God bless you.